This podcast is sponsored by Cloud Optimizer. As a business owner or IT manager, are your cloud investment costs going up and you don't know why? It's time for Cloud Optimizer. As you migrate your business to the cloud, what you're spending and why you're spending it can get a little hazy. But Cloud Optimizer clears up the mystery and puts the cloud to work for you. Cloud Optimizer starts by analyzing usage patterns, right-sizing resources, leveraging discounts you may not be aware of, implementing automation, and much more. And by reducing unnecessary expenses and maximizing performance, Cloud Optimizer guarantees you a savings of five times what you spend for their service. As you utilize cloud-based services more and more, you don't have to lose sight or control of your spend. You can stay agile, streamline your costs, and optimize your performance, plus save significant money with Cloud Optimizer. Make the cloud work for you with Cloud Optimizer. Get a free assessment and find out how much you can save by going to cloudoptimizer.com. Go to cloudoptimizer.com for your free assessment. That's cloudoptimizer.com. Ladies and gentlemen, uh... Can I please have your attention? Daniel Jigger! Greetings, dear listeners. This is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by the Dispatch and Dispatch Media. Um, I'm going to jump right into it because uh, his time is valuable and he's very far away. Um, this is a first-time appearance for uh, one of my favorite writers. Very interesting dude. Um, he's a writer for the Atlantic and, um, he's at least among journalist types, probably the most interesting and most insightful guy to write about groups like ISIS in particular. Um, his name is Graham Wood. Uh, Graham, welcome to the remnant. Thank you for having me. Um, we should tell, I don't want to tell listeners where you are unless you want to divulge that, but you are far away in uh, a hotel room in in not on this continent i am in a hot sandy place called called riyadh saudi arabia yeah so uh what 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 brings you there if you can say uh you know i've wanted to go to saudi arabia for some time and there's a lot of changes going on here so i i thought i'd poke around and see them for myself um very cool okay um and can we just just for a quick level setting can you tell people how you ended up at the atlantic you kind of have a I mean, I, I know people who write for the Atlantic. I like the Atlantic, but you have a more eggheady, grandiose sort of bio than 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 the average intrepid journalist. Yeah, I started at the Atlantic in 2006, and my immediate prior employment was as a translator, a courier, and a, a bootlegger in northern Iraq. So, I had tried my hand at freelance journalism and had done fine. Um, but in the mid 2000s, Iraq became far too dangerous a place for me to go around with, without any institutional support. So I found work uh, selling alcohol in northern Iraq and moving packages back and forth while doing some freelancing on the side. And eventually I decided to go full time and pro with journalism in the Atlantic, saw things my way and hired me. It's kind of a shame you didn't go full time with the bootlegging. We could have an interesting conversation about that. Um, all right. So, uh, Again, so yesterday or earlier this week, I had a friend of mine, libertarian writer from Reason on to talk about movies and um, culture stuff and some and some budgetary wonkery. And instead, we spent 45 minutes arguing about Afghanistan. So 
I, I do want to ask you your just general view of the policy, the situation, all that kind of stuff. But if the curse continues and we end up getting into a 45 minute argument about Marvel movies, uh, then I'm just going to hang everything up. Um, I'm, I'm going to try not to like, I, I honestly don't know what your global position is on all of this kind of thing. Um, so what do you make of the, 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 the two part, it's a two part question. What do you make of the policy of withdrawal of the United States? And what do you make of the execution that we've witnessed in the last three weeks? So first I'll say that most of my reporting is I go places and I see what's going on. And it's, it's less prophetic in the sense of I can tell you what the best policy would have been. So I've been going back to Afghanistan since before 9-11. I, I was meeting the Taliban in 2001 on the border with, with Pakistan. And I saw it changing over the course of the next 21 years. And seeing how much it improved during that time, uh, especially in the early years, I'm, I'm afraid to say, that is from like 2001 to 2000 five or so, gave me a lot of hope and confidence uh, that, of course, I feel like so many other people uh, has been utterly dashed by knowing that the Taliban are now in charge and all that comes along with that. So what I see now is I'm I'm very dispirited. uh, I'm very worried. um, And if there was a way to, for the United States to remain, have an intelligence presence the ability to have a, um, a projected military presence in Afghanistan um, going forward, um, that would have been worth a lot to me, and I'm, I'm, I'm sad to see it go. That said, I mentioned that the real improvements were early, in early days during the American occupation. Like it got way better between 2001 and 2006 or so, 2005, 2006. And the fact that it was only getting worse is something that I, I just have to acknowledge. Everybody has to acknowledge it was getting worse. And if we didn't have a plan for, to arrest that that uh, downward spiral, then yeah, that, there's a, a bit of a tear off the bandaid kind of view that that um, that I have following some others. That, that you know, if eventually we're going to lose, it's better to lose sooner. Um, it's mm-hmm. better to lose um, in in the way that we did. Um, I'm not sure we had a way out of this, um, but the way it happened um, and the fact that it had to happen fills me with with shame, grief, and, and regret as an American. Um, so just one factual question on that. So I understand when you, when you say it was getting worse, you mean vis-a-vis the Taliban's improving strategic position, or do you mean in terms of like civil society in the parts that were not under Taliban control? What, what's the metric? What's the meat of the metric getting worse there? What you're talking about more Afghans being killed. So that's that's the the first thing that I would I would mention. But just as a point of comparison, in 2004, I hitchhiked around Afghanistan. I went all over the country, uh, and I did that. It wasn't safe to do that. It was stupid to do that, in fact. But it was thinkable. And I, as a you know 20 something American uh, with no one out there to help me, could do such a thing. And to do it today would, would be, uh, or to do it in the last few years, would have been obviously suicidal. So I, I think the, the way to measure it is lots of, of Afghans were dying. Um, fewer Americans were dying, uh, almost zero, in fact, by the end. But the country was not getting to be a safer place. There were pockets of, of uh, 
of humanity that were still there, but much of it was a, a savage wasteland and not improving at all. Okay, so um, I mean, I, I I could talk about that a lot more, but I've I've talked a lot about Afghanistan, and I have other stuff I want to ask you about. Um, so and some of this will feed into the Afghan Afghanistan part. Um, uh, so we're hearing a lot about how the Taliban and ISIS K are mortal enemies, right? They're, 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 and there's a certain undertone in the way the administration talks about this and some of its friendlier, uh, you know, supporters in the media that we're heading into this new chapter of my enemy's enemy is my friend. Um, that the po- Taliban, I mean, we're not quite yet hearing the phrase partners in peace, but you can feel it coming in the wind. <laughs> and, um, so I was wondering since, since you've done so much reporting on, on ISIS and you know, Afghanistan, and I have, I have a bunch of more detailed questions about this, but like, what is the relationship between ISIS K and, and Taliban and, um, and how much how much of ISIS K is actually in the, you know, sort of essentially in the Taliban sub, you know, in Mufti as it were. Yeah. So the ISIS K and the Taliban are indeed mortal enemies. That, that is a true statement. Um, the, the other thing to remember about ISIS K is that they are newcomers. Um, there was no such thing as ISIS in Khorasan until 2000, maybe 15 or 16. And the Taliban have been around since the mid 1990s. So, right. The Taliban are, are going to be regarding these guys as, who are you again? We've been fighting here. This is our place. And you, some Afghans, some Pakistanis, are coming in and telling us what to do. Um, we don't take kindly to that. And then ISIS-K you know, gives as good as it gets in the, the, um, the trade of insults. So ISIS says that the Taliban are a bunch of illiterate uh, hillbillies who know so little about their religion that they're not even Muslim and they need to be killed. So these are things that they just can't be taken back. Some of the insults. And so I I think the fight between them is a real one. Now, whether we as outsiders, as the West, as the United States can ally with the Taliban against ISIS uh, and whether that's a good idea, that's a totally different issue. I mean, the the Taliban uh, have, have given very, few credible signs that they're the type of people who we should feel comfortable partnering with. So what this all comes down to is we've left Afghanistan and we've left it in a, a, a into a, a kind of a swirling mayhem of factions. Uh, and these are two of the bigger ones. There's more to come. So um, just staying on this for a second, the one of the things I find fascinating is the, um, the role that, and this sort of gets into some of the stuff you wrote recently about the nature of of converts in in Islam generally, but the role that uh, ideas, and in this case, religion, um, and religious interpretation, are used as excuses for simple Machiavellian power politics right and um uh groups need to invoke some kind of legitimizing dogma doctrine can't ideology to justify why their faction should be in charge you know the 
the Bolsheviks and the Mensheviks were both socialists, right? And like, if you tried to explain to somebody today what the the differences between the two were, it would get pretty weedy pretty quickly. Are there theological significant theological differences between ISIS K and Taliban, or is it really more city mice versus country mice, or we want to be in charge and you guys shouldn't be in charge? There are real differences. Uh, yeah. So the the Taliban come out of a uh, out of a movement called Deobandism uh, out of a madrasa in, in India. So it's, it's actually a late 19th century thing. And it, it is, it's a South Asian movement that went over Pakistan, went through Afghanistan. But when they came to power, it wasn't saying we have found the true religion. It, so much as we are going to impose order on chaos after years of civil war. So they had their, their boys were being raped, their women were being robbed and raped. And, and it was a, a horrible mess. The Taliban, before they became known as uh, as standard bearers for Al-Qaeda or for some view of Islam, they became known as the people who were hanging those rapists from tank barrels and making Afghanistan at least orderly, if, if brutal. And then ISIS, on the other hand, they started off very quickly saying, we are a theological movement. We've got views about religion that are non-negotiable. And that's where we derive our strength from. They were also imposing order in other ways too, of course. But the Taliban, these were basically like the guys from you know, backwoods guys, the Afghan deliverance types. They were mm. not highly literate individuals with views of, of religion that, that were defended in, in you know, um, in in seminars and so on. Um, and ISIS, on the other hand, they were they, they were starting off saying, "We've looked it up and." Our religion requires us to have a caliph. Has a has, it requires us to believe certain things, and to declare certain everybody else to be non-Muslims. And the Taliban, by contrast, they have from the start. It's, it's funny to say this because they're pretty intolerant in their own way. But compared to ISIS, they're absolute kumbaya. Let's just all get along. We're all Muslims here, and um, ISIS is not having any of that. So that. The, the difference is, you're right, you can get pretty picayune about what, what they are, um, but they're significant enough that, that uh, one group wants to kill all the rest of the other. Um, yeah, so but, so how does, how does that, I can't, I can't remember reading that this comes out of 19th century India. I mean, my understanding of the, Pakistan, of the Taliban was that this was largely organized by Pakistan ISI. Um, in the in the nineties, so I mean, explain to me just like the connect connect the dots from the madrasa in India to what the pa- what the Pakistanis were doing um, in that that time period. Yeah, so, so the madrasa Deoband in 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 India that's a historical thing. That's the origin of this particular school that has many followers who have nothing to do with the Taliban. Um, but it spread through South Asia, and the Taliban were religious students in that tradition. So they start taking power. That's what Taliban means, is students, right? Or yeah, Talib like is actually Arabic for, for students, and then you put an at the end, and it's a kind of Persian um, suffix that means that makes it plural. So they just said, we're, we're students, we're seekers of knowledge. Um, but the tradition that came from was this Deobandi tradition, which has some peculiarities, like not showing human forms, for example, is, is one of the things that, that 
For example, ISIS had no problem showing up human forms. Taliban were pretty excited about, about banning that, that kind of thing. And it, it wasn't as if they were being remote controlled from that, that madrasa or from the 19th century. They were much more clearly, as you say, being controlled by Pakistan, which saw the Taliban as it started taking power as a very useful force that they could uh, have have sway over. So that they recognized the Taliban in the 1990s as the legitimate government of Afghanistan. And during the 1990s, you know, we talk a lot about Al-Qaeda camps during that period because, you know, it, it turned out to matter for us as Americans. Pakistan was running lots of camps there to fight against India, to fight in Kashmir. So Afghanistan was like a, a great big prison workout yard for jihadists under the control of Pakistan with a few Arabs and Westerners who were working for Al-Qaeda uh, on the side. So the, the Pakistani influence is, is real, but if we're talking about the theological and the religious influence, then we go back to 19th century India. Um, so do you have a reigning, I mean, I've asked a bunch of different people this and I get different answers. Do you have a reigning theory about why the U.S. during these 20 years of, you know, as, as H.R. McMaster put it, you know, 20 years of fighting one-year wars, um, why no one had the temerity and the and administration policymakers to focus on Pakistan's role in all of this? Is it just, just it's sort of like one of these Herman Kahnish kind of things, thinking the unthinkable, just too difficult, so let's pretend it's not a problem? Yeah, well, Afghanistan can plausibly be thought of as a local problem. I mean, it, it, it's not a country with a, a lot of, you know, far-flung influences. Pakistan is not a local problem. Um, Pakistan is a huge, complicated, modern country with nuclear weapons, uh, and it is not surprising to me that that uh, the solution to Pakistan is not something that, that anybody has come up with, including Pakistan itself. Um, so. With Afghanistan, I, I sometimes think back to those early years uh, when the American project and occupation there w w was was going well, and like how could it have have gone better? It might have been doomed from the start, just because we always knew uh, that Pakistan was going to be upsetting things. Um, Pakistan would be, you know, Afghanistan was once the strategic depth for Pakistan, and then it flipped the other way. The tides reversed and Pakistan became the strategic depth for, for the Taliban. So um, it, it might, in that sense, have, have been um, yeah, doomed even when it, it, it looked good. I think the, the deeper problem, though, for, from my perspective is, at that point, what would our victory have looked like? It might have looked like just preserving the gains that we had, which was we had created some kind of space for a civil society. Uh, Afghans who wanted to be educated, both genders, could be educated. Um, and, and could we have made that a permanent thing? Um, I'm not sure in retrospect if, if there was a possibility, but it would, have, it would have started with locking in the gains from 2005. And instead, mm -hmm. we saw them disappearing, slipping away slowly but surely. So what do you... So you know, you wrote a great piece of the Atlantic about how the Taliban hasn't really changed, um, or at least it's fairly foolish uh, to bet that way um, if you don't want to end up like one of the dudes who had his testicles put in his mouth, to paraphrase something that you wrote. Um, 
uh, where do you, I mean, beyond, I mean, beyond advice for how Afghans, Afghans should bet with their lives vis-a-vis the Taliban, where do you see this, this tr- Taliban 2.0 stuff actually playing out? Like, uh, I've heard some people say, no, you don't understand. They really, really do want the seat in the UN and they really do want the World Bank money and they do want to be like basically like Saudi Arabia um, with more mountains. Um, um, do you buy that? Do you buy that they're going to uh, not give free run to Al Qaeda internally? Um, um, no, I don't you know, buy it at all. <laughs> I mean, yeah. look, they've always wanted these things. The question is are they willing to do anything? to show that they are worthy of them. Um, are they worthy of recognition by countries other than Pakistan and a couple others? I mean, it, when the Taliban took power, they said, uh, calm down, everybody. We're not going to be awful. We're going to be nice. Uh, we're going to be merciful. And th- that's exactly what they said 25 years ago when they came to power in, in Kabul and then began a five-year brutal reign of terror. So Mm -hmm. I don't take them at their word when they say exactly what they said 25 years ago um, today. Now, here's one difference, though. When they took over Kabul in 1996, they they took over a city that had been basically destroyed. I mean, it was rubble. It continued to be rubble under the Taliban. And now they're taking over a city that is a work of science fiction compared to mm-hmm. what that you could have seen if you compared it to what it was in say September, 2001. So they really have something to lose right now. They could have a city that, that functions and has, you know, international flights and business, or they can have what they had last time they were in control of, of Kabul, which it was a kind of Neolithic civilization uh, and that had been pounded into the dust by years of, of civil war. So they've got incentives to show that they've changed. And so they're trying to show that that's the case. What I just don't see is any reason to think that, that, that these are deep changes that reflect what they really believe. In fact, everything about what the Taliban has been doing over, over the last 10, 20 years suggests that they're just remarkably consistent. They really like Al-Qaeda. They really like kind of brutality that, that they've been practicing since since their inception they have seen it seems like they have discovered that there are possible returns to saying that they um want to de-emphasize those things right but the suggestion that they don't actually like them um it'd be foolhardy to credit that um all right so just two more quick just my own curiosity questions and then i want to move on to some other aspects of this but um the taliban itself is it how factional versus unified is it? It's not Napoleon's standing army. It's more like various bannermen from Game of Thrones, right? I mean, like, like, is there a military structure that says, here's an order and I can order, I have, I, I have the exact same authority with this group of Taliban fighters that I do with this group of Taliban fighters, or is it really a bunch of warlords and clans or something in the between, in between? They're more unified than just a bunch of warlords and clans. They're sometimes spoken of as um, different jirgas, which means a, an assembly. And the, a loya jirga is a big jirga, so that's what they had right. when they named Hamid Karzai president. And 
they talk about different jirgas from different parts that, that represent different Taliban factions. Um, I, I would say you have to understand how um, primitive this group started off as and in some ways continues to be. What did it mean for the Taliban to take over a town um, in the 1990s? Uh, similar to today, it's not like, you know, the, the third army rolling in with its tanks and, and you know, an enormous bureaucracy showing up. It's some guys in a, in a Hilux pickup with guns in their hand driving into the center of the city and hopping out and saying, okay, now we're in charge. So it, it's not, um, it's not a, a command structure that, that at all resembles a modern military, but that doesn't mean they don't answer to each other and, and, and give each other respect. So it, it's, um, it's not so vociferous, the, the, this, this group that you can't talk to some of them. Um, but, um, and you know, know that you're talking to, to, to people who are in charge. Um, but it, it, it ain't the U S military either. All right. So, and this is a really almost juvenile question, but, I, and, and I admit it can sound a little bigoted because you never want to say, oh, you can't tell this ethnic one member of this ethnicity apart from another ethnicity, but like all these Taliban fighters, I look at them really closely when I see them on TV, how do they denote rank? Like, how do they denote, like, like, I, I, how, how does a commander claim to be a commander if you can't, I mean, like, are there some wristbands I'm not seeing? Like, how does that just actually work? Yeah, I don't think there's a rank iconography like that, although they've come into some new military equipment and uniforms. So you can now see Taliban soldiers walking around in what look like modern military outfits. I don't know if they respect what the patches say on them, but, but there yeah. they are. But, but to uh, organize a large... The, the, thing you have a commander the commander needs to be recognizable as a commander right i mean that's the that's what i'm getting at is how do you designate hierarchy because armies are nothing if they're not hierarchical once they hit a certain scale right you know having never done boot camp in the taliban military i can't say for sure (laughs) but I, i will say this this is a tremendously tribal society and it's not like the u.s military in this way too that if you go to Paris Island or wherever, then you're meeting people from all over the country, people you don't know. If you're in the Taliban, you are part of a tribal group where you might know everybody you you interact with personally. And you might not need uniforms because you know that that guy who's in charge is the guy who's in charge. It's Sam, it's Fred, or it's whoever whoever this person is. So they don't have to integrate a a massive unknown even to itself um, state the way we do. They, They have tribal origins and uh those make things like like uniforms maybe less useful than, than they might otherwise be okay but so how did, how did that work with isis like when i saw the isis fighters in iraq you know back in the heydays of isis i couldn't tell a sergeant from a command i mean i'm not saying that they have to have those exact titles or anything like but someone's someone has the authority to boss around somebody else where how, how do they just organize that stuff so they were organized into what are called khatibas, which were like brigades, and they would often be organized by nationality. Uh, you know, they said that we're breaking down nationality, but you got a group where all the Chechens are, and then you've got another one with all these Frenchmen, and um, they're so they're organized like that. Now, how you tell, um, let's say, there's three of them who are were all jockeying for position as leader of that khatiba. I don't know how you dis- you you settle a dispute like that, but they're just broken down into groups where, where people know each other, and, and yeah, you don't need to have a, a colonel's rank on your on your shoulder to to for everybody to know that you're in charge. 
So, uh, um, that's actually, I mean, it's not a great segue point, but it's a good segue point. Uh, you wrote an interesting piece, uh, in June about how, uh, Muslim converts tend to be, uh, here's how the subhead put it. Muslim converts tend to be less religious than their non-convert peers. So what explains their overrepresentation among jihadists? So in other words, as a statistical matter, um, Muslim converts are more likely to be, you know, essentially terrorists for want of a better term, um, uh, than native born or born from birth, you know, Muslims from birth. Um, um, but also less religious than Muslims from birth. And why don't you sort of walk through that and also what your theory is? Cause I think I might have a competing theory about this and I just want to. Oh, good. I, I can't wait to hear it. it. So, <laughs> so the, the impetus for that, that piece was uh, some research that just came out from Georgia state university where they're, they're looking at converts to find out what their characteristics are, because let's be honest, everybody who's looked at the jihadist space has noticed that there's way more converts in it than there would be in the general population of Muslims. So there's some estimates that among foreign fighters who went to ISIS, we're talking like 20, 25% of them are people who started off as Christians or as Hindus or whatever. So that, that seems noteworthy. And the researchers found, as you say, that the converts in general, and not talking about jihadists, but just converts, tend to be, quote unquote, less religious than, um, than native-born believers, Muslim believers. And that that's that might um i think in at least in the in the the authors of that paper's mind um put to rest the idea that they're just more religious and being more religious makes you join isis um i first of all think that measurement of being religious is a really tough thing to do and social psychologists are not great at it um like do you do you know if someone's religious by seeing how many times a day they pray, how reliably they pray? Because, um, you know, I've known some very religious people who do terrible things and then feel bad about it because of their religion. And if you were to just note how many times they, you know, went to mass or um, prayed right. as a Muslim, then that wouldn't be a great indicator of, of how eaten away at their, they are inside by their, by their deep religious belief. Um, so the theory that I have which I look forward to having some social scientists tested is that um, to be a convert, you just have to be, it helps to be a bit of an asshole. Look, if someone's asking you to convert, then they're asking you to throw off everything that, that uh, you've been, you've, you've grown up with it, it. They're asking you to go home to mom and dad and say, yeah, all that stuff that you taught me about how to be a good person or about the, you know, where the world is going, it turns out to be, nonsense. Um, so you have to be someone who's really willing to be disagreeable, uh, to convert if, if that's the, the, um, reaction that you expect to face. And that might be a big part of this is jihadists who convert or Muslims who convert are also Muslims who are more likely to be disagreeable because they're not afraid of, of, of upsetting people. And, it's not too surprising that someone who's more likely to be disagreeable is also someone more likely to be willing to cut another person's head off. Um, yeah. Although in fairness, I think we both know a lot of disagreeable people who don't want to cut off anybody's head, but, um, 
longtime listeners of this podcast know that I, I, I don't like monocausal explanations for anything. I think that it's very difficult to boil down any one thing. So I am perfectly happy and willing to say that I think you've got a, an important point there, and that's part of it, to be sure. But it seems to me, I mean, so tell me what you think of this. Um, I seem to recall, and I, I, you know, after 9-11, I did a lot of reading on all of this stuff. I recently trimmed my my book collection here, and it's amazing how many, like, Islam books I basically donated because it's just... I kept the good ones, you know, I kept my Bernard Lewis and all that, but like, anyway, I, I, and I seem to recall, it was Fuad Ajami and people like him were pointing out that the real problem in Europe had less to do with Muslim immigrants than the children of Muslim immigrants. There was that second generation that didn't quite feel authentically Muslim or authentically whatever ethnicity they were from and didn't, and also didn't feel assimilated. And it was that, that Frizan, that alienation that they felt both from their parents' culture and from their the culture that they were living in that made them very susceptible to appeals to jihadism. Similarly, um, uh, it seems to me, not just Muslims, but a lot of people who, if you look at, and, and again, I want to be careful here because I'm not trying to cast aspersions on anybody, but there's a really inter- there is all sorts of interesting differences in the data in American politics between regular church attending evangelicals and people who say they're self-declared evangelicals but do not go to church. And it seems to me that one of the defining things between the two is for for the people who regularly go to church, being an ev- evangelical is actually a religion primarily a religious thing. It might be other things as well, but it, it is like there they're putting their faith in deeds. They're doing the work of being a religious person. For the people who don't go but still wear their evangelical status proudly on their sleeve, but they don't actually do much work to be religious and don't go to church, for them it's a form of identity politics. And it seems to me that like a lot of the jihad is... Well, first of all, I think identity politics is often, not always... But particularly when it, it it overlaps with ideological pursuits, is really should be understood as a quest for meaning. It is a quest for figuring out how to define who I am. And for deracinated, alienated young people, converting to Islam of the sorts that we're talking about here. I'm sure there are plenty who do it sincerely and they go, but like of the sorts that we're talking about here, for them it is much more about like wearing an identity on their sleeve and being and and finding something that they get to join into that gives them a permission structure to be the assholes that you're talking about too right yeah. i mean um and so I, I i guess my problem is is just the focusing on it seems to me the disagreeableness is partly downstream of the 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 process that drives some of these people to do this kind of thing yeah, when I focus on disagreeableness, it, it's because this is in the context of a paper that's about social sure. psychology and dimensions of personality. So everything else that you say, though, is operative here. And when we talk about religious observance and identity, they are not, uh, you, you can't disentangle them. I mean, the way that you express that identity might be through religious observance. Um, the way that you observe your religion might be by increasing, amping up your, your, your sense of Muslim identity, which is a way that, that is one of the prime, um, prime 
activities of, of ISIS. What, what I found people all the time, though, who in one way or another, the word that you, um, that you used was meaning, and that mm-hmm. is definitely what they were getting from this. Whether it's a social meaning or a, a, a religious meaning, they felt like they were part of something important. Um, and I, there's, um, there's, there's one observer of jihad who, who put it to me this way. He said, look, look, you can find people who are absolute losers. They have not done very well in their societies and they're being told you're 24 and you're a loser, but you can be part of the greatest battle that has ever taken place in the history of mankind. Um, right. you can play in the Super Bowl and score a goal. That's, that's the level of awesomeness that awaits you at the middle point, maybe end point uh, of this very unpromising life. Um, so yeah, the, all of these all of these things come together, and you know the generational aspect that you mentioned too. That that's that's something that ISIS supporters themselves have told me. One of them said, mm. "Look, our families came here, and they came to Scandinavia in, the, in this, this person's case, and um, their main concern was working. They wanted us to have a good life, and they solved that problem. We're in Norway. <laughs> How bad can it right. be? <laughs> and that means our generation gets to solve the next problem, which is." the life beyond and that's why we're so excited about this so it it, it all comes together that the the migration the social psychology the sense of meaning the religion it, it, it's all part of the same um the same phenomenon yeah i mean there's also this fascinating and i'm not saying that you disagree i wasn't expecting you to disagree with what i was saying but i because I, I, I read you know your big isis piece and you got into a lot of that stuff but um uh there's also the aspect of there's a long history going back at least to the French Revolution um, of basically the children of the bourgeois. It's usually higher prosperity bourgeois than, say, you know, uh, Muslim grocery store owners in Norway. But regardless of the but the children desperately in search of something other than the meritocracy to give their life definition. And that those, you know, the, the kids who were throwing rocks in 1968 in Paris weren't the sons of construction workers. They were the sons of doctors and lawyers. You know, it's a point Deirdre McCloskey likes to make a lot. And yeah, you look at the Bolsheviks, you look at, I mean, just go out through history. It is generally well to do, um, or at least not, deeply poor people who are the stuff of revolutions they're the stuff of uh it's the it's 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 the surplus elites as you know as you wrote about not too long ago that tend to be um or the lumpen elite the elites that want to be elite but aren't quite um that lead these kinds of revolutions and i think there's something going on there as well yeah there's even been research to to back that up in the case of jihadists where you know the, the sort of um uh, knee-jerk kind of dumb liberal version of where jihadists come from is they're poor people. And very quickly we figured out that is not the case. Uh, right. They tend to be a little richer actually than the average person. And then the next step was to, to find out that uh, there are actually, there's this kind of sweet spot of where jihadists come from in socioeconomic spectra, where if you're poor enough, then you've got other things on your mind. You, you just are busy with things and you don't have right. time to uproot things and then 
go to Syria. And then if you're very wealthy, then things are going well for you. So you're not even thinking about these. But if you're right there in the middle, in this dangerous middle class band, and then you get reached by the wrong ideology, uh, then it's lights out. You're you're uh, you're in the prime target zone for for being recruited to go to Syria and maybe not Afghanistan. Yeah, and also, I mean, just I mean to bring it back to American politics for a second. Uh, partly because my last name is Goldberg, partly because I have, you know, the Jewiest name this side of Shlomo Abramowitz, um, and partly because I was at National Review for 20 years. I've been dealing with what now we call the alt right, but you know, the sort of the the, the vestiges of the sort of fever swampy anti-Semitic right for a long, long time. And um, we certainly have a lot bigger problem with this than we did 20 years ago. Um, just, I think the internet has been very bad for some of these kinds of problems and just like with ISIS. Right. And, and I'm not saying the alt-right schmucks we have in America are more equivalent to ISIS. They're not beheading people. They're not blowing stuff up. Um, you know, some would say give them time, but that's not me. Um, but this, this sense of, of, you know, the fact that in the incel thing has become associated with the alt-right, I think is very real is like, you have these young people, these young men, boys who feel like they are locked out of the, the supply chain of the meritocracy in some way or another. Some of them get really hooked up on the, you know, worked up on the fact that it has all to do with race, but some of them, you know, just are just really torqued off that they can't get laid. And, um, and our brains are not wired to sort of keep all of these different complaints separate. We bundle them into this holistic indictment of the system. And you just see, you know, having been, having been heckled by a lot of these kids and approached by a lot of these kids at various campuses over the years, you can tell it's part of it is just like, I'm not as valued as I believe I should be valued by this culture. And, um, and I don't, and I don't think it's fair. And I want to be part of something that is revolutionary or rebellious or says, screw you to the powers that be. And you can just, you can see it like working in their heads as they talk. to you. Yeah. I, I, some of the people who are in the alt-right who, who I know, uh, including, uh, you may know, I, I was a classmate of Richard Spencer in middle school. So I've known oh, him for, <laughs> for quite some time. And if you ask them, what are you part of? Um, they will not talk about the next election. They'll talk about a movement that like, Richard used to, um, I mean, in 2016, not in middle school, he used to liken himself to Theodore Herzl. He'd say, <laughs> look, I, I would like to be a world historical figure. I would like to be an, an intellectual father of a political movement that eventually gets into the weeds, but my success will be an intellectual one. And it's kind of similar with, with some of these ISIS people where you ask them, oh, well, tell me how trash collection is going to work in the caliphate. That is something the caliphate actually had to think about, how to run societies. And many of the foreigners who would go there would, would say, you know, I, I don't really know how it's going to work. That's not my role in this. My role is to die gloriously founding this place and to see themselves in that dramatic world historical role. Um, you know, it, it, it's a, it's a very familiar kind of longing when when you talk to some of the some of the alt right, not all of them, but some of the alt right who who see themselves as as kind of second founders of the United States or or something like that. 
Yeah, no, and, and I mean, so th- this is what I was getting. I was getting at with that question I asked you in the beginning about the differences between ISIS and the Taliban. How much of it is sort of motivated reasoning about something else rather than a, a, a theological thing? Because um, of all of the things that I've kind of reevaluated in the last twenty years in terms of intellectually and stuff. I'd say the role of psychology and politics has probably been one of the biggest ones. I used to reject it outright. I still think there's mm-hmm. an enormous amount of garbage that is peddled in that vein. Um, I think like Theodore Adorno was, a, was was largely a fraud and all that kind of stuff. But I think Jonathan Haidt and Paul Bloom and a lot of these guys are really brilliant and they they provide something really, really useful when you start looking at this stuff. And so like uh, the, the philosopher Eric Vergelin, he had this theory about political religions and that you know utopia utopian political religions were trying to he famously put it immunitize the eschaton which became weirdly a william f buckley slogan in when he ran for mayor it was don't immunitize the eschaton and i suspect that if we were doing this if you were doing your stuff 80 90 years ago and you were talking to young bolsheviks or john reed you know the famous american socialist who went to go fight with the bolsheviks and all that and he asked them, so how is trash collection going to work in the new communist utopia to come um, in this basically the Bolshevik caliphate? It's like, eh, I don't know. We'll, you know, we'll work that out. You know, oh, that's a capitalist question, whatever. And, and I think you, there's just this through line through history of, of people grabbing ideological constructs to give themselves sort of as a, as a, as a, as a legitimizing doctrine for their essentially their will to power and their will to meaning. Um, and I, you just see it over and over again. And maybe I'm finding it, maybe it's a sign that it's, I'm exaggerating too much because I see it everywhere. And whenever you see an idea that you have everywhere, it's probably, it, it, you're probably too married to it, but I do see it everywhere these days. With the, I think this is helpful though, in illustrating the difference between the Taliban and ISIS is ISIS started that way. That was the point right. of ISIS. And the Taliban did not. As I mentioned, the Taliban were, um, they, they came to power in a sort of law and order way. Now, pretty early on, Mullah Omar, the, the founder of the Taliban, um, there was this very famous incident where there's a, there's a mosque in Kandahar, and it has in it the mantle of the Prophet Muhammad, so cloak. And they keep it in there. I went and visited it one time. I'm not allowed to see it as, as an outsider, but it has magical properties. Like, apparently, if you do see it, and you're not a believer, then you won't be able to describe it when you come out. It'll be like you're a, a Westworld robot who's seen a cell phone or something. I, I'm, I'm not <laughs> sure what I saw there. But he went and he put it on and he got on top of the Eidgah, which is it's this arch outside of Kandahar, outskirts of Kandahar, and said, I am the Amir al-Mumanin, which is a, a term that historically is synonymous with Caliph. So he was thinking of himself in these grandiose terms that are very ISIS-like, uh, mm-hmm. if not identical to ISIS. But especially in the early stages and in emphasis, the Taliban were trying to take power and they were much, much more interested in making sure that power stuck than they were in being really rough on people who slightly disagreed with them about theological issues. Whereas ISIS had many opportunities to let the theological stuff slide and typically would not do that. So. I don't know. I, I, in some, in different cases, different groups are more worrisome to me. Ones that can be yeah. pragmatic and ones that can't. Um, and then ISIS really found a place where being 
not pragmatic and being very principled got it way further than than one would ever hope to see a group like that get. Now, I I hope to find out that those pragmatic roots in the Taliban persuade them to to change their ways. But like I say, there's, there's just no evidence that that's the case. So I remain as I usually am pessimistic. Yeah. So I mean, uh, again, uh, there's uh, some other stuff I want to get to while I while I still have you and before the 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 Riyadh religious beliefs come and grab, drag you out of the room. Um, but just sticking on Taliban and ISIS-K for, again for a second, one of the other things you hear along with the sort of whispers of partners in peace and uh, our enemy is, uh, enemy of my enemy is my friend stuff, um, is there are a lot of people who, I find that there are a lot of, I'll just lay my cards out. I, 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 I think the mainstream media is generally liberally biased, but, um, and, um, doesn't mean it all does bad work, but I just think it is. And, um, but they've been remarkably tough on Biden about the Afghanistan stuff. And I think tough and fair, you know, like, you know, cause this has just been bad, I think. And, uh, but you're starting to hear now some analyst types, um, trying to give Biden fans these little things to hold on to. Right. And one of them is that, oh, you know, part of the genius of this is the Taliban doesn't really know how to, you know, hasn't had to govern for 20 years and now they have to govern. And, um, you know, it's terrorism is their problem now. And, and like trying to make it sound like, oh, the poor Taliban, they got, you know, careful what you wish for Taliban, you got it kind of thing. And I get the point, like they do have to figure out how to collect garbage, right? They have to do all that kind of stuff. Um, but I guess the question is how much are they actually going, how much do you think they're actually going to struggle, struggle fighting ISIS K and, um, fighting domestic terrorism as it is, as I often hear them saying, um, or is this going to be an annoying, but certainly manageable problem, but hardly like a, an existential problem for the Taliban. The Taliban, as I said in the beginning, that they're several, they started the game several touchdowns ahead of ISIS K that, They've been fighting for a long time. They are of the place in a way that ISIS-K typically is not. So they're way ahead. And it's not as if ISIS is going to come in and take over the Taliban's territory. But Afghanistan is impossible for the Taliban to occupy for many of the same reasons that it was impossible for the United States to occupy. And that means that groups like ISIS-K and then other groups of totally different ideological and ethnic persuasions are going to be impossible for the Taliban to completely subdue. Um, they couldn't do it when they were in charge in the 1990s. They only got about 90% of the country. So I, I think what it means is that, again, it, we're getting back to a, a civil war state where the, the Taliban may be the, the biggest group in charge, but they do inherit a lot of these, these problems. I, I don't think, though, that, you know, as I look back in the way that the Taliban has acted, has it learned enough so that it can it can actually take control of things? Has it learned enough so it can have outside partners who who feed it money and encourage it so that it, it, it actually subdues the whole country? I think probably not. I mean, mm-hmm. when I first encountered the Taliban, it was in April 2001. And it was at a time when 
the Taliban were actively courting China. They wanted China to recognize them. And uh, they were a starving country. They were suffering. And if China was willing to come in and start rebuilding Afghanistan, it it would have been a a great thing for them. And what did they do? They blew up the Buddhas in Bamiyan. (laughs) Now, there's there's a number of things you can do that are bad that will not upset the Chinese. But destroying the heritage of, of the world and some of the most yeah. incredible Buddhist statuary that, that has, has ever been made uh, is one of the things that will derail your bilateral relationship with China. And so at back then, they just could not control themselves when it came to acting like, like total creeps. And there would have to be a lot of learning that's happened in the meantime for them now to be able to suddenly extend a hand of friendship to other countries and expect those countries to, to say, you know, you think that you might have reformed yourself to our satisfaction. Hey, so speaking of China, is there any prospect of, you know, the argument you get from the Biden administration is that we have to pivot to geostrategic stuff and that we were being laughed at by China and Russia by being there and all that kind of stuff. And I think that's there, a lot of that is deeply, deeply flawed, but um, is there a po- is there a possibility that, if the Taliban behave, you know, if, if, if you're right, and I think you are right, that this is an Aesopian thing and the scorpions aren't going to stop being scorpions, the Taliban's not going to stop being the Taliban. Um, is it possible that this is, this does now present a real problem or a challenge for China, given the Uyghur stuff and, and, and whatnot? I mean, I, we actually commissioned a piece, I commissioned a piece for the, the dispatch a couple of months ago. Because I find it fascinating how, and maybe you have an opinion on this, that I, I get why big chunks of the Islamic world don't like Israel, and that's, that's an argument that we're all very familiar with. Rounding up a million Uyghurs and putting them in concentration camps seems to be the kind of thing that should piss off the, in, the international Muslim community, too. Let's just say that. And yet there's very little about it. And one of the explanations we got, Sheikh Atiri wrote a good piece for us about this, is that much of the Islamic world or the Arabic world in particular will not cover it. They just don't talk about it. It doesn't appear in their press. And it's just, it's a, so you ask a Muslim in the street in a lot of places in the world, what do you think about what they're doing to the Uyghurs? They're like, what are you talking about? But presumably word is getting out to some extent and you would, th- and presumably there are some Uyghurs who are kind of pissed off. So is, is there a possibility that we start seeing some, you know, training camps that are problems for, China instead of the United States? So people don't talk about this very much, but the Uyghurs are already there in Afghanistan. The Taliban have had foreign brigades who who have been fighting with them since the very beginning, since before September 11. And uh, those include Uyghurs. They include Chechens. Uh, There are, um, there's any number of of foreign nationalities that are represented. And I've had Afghans uh, in Kabul who know the Taliban very well say to me, look, this does not stop at our borders. This is going to have um, implications elsewhere. Now, uh, I don't like those Uyghurs' odds in Afghanistan um, challenging the Chinese government. So mm-hmm. I'm not saying it's, it's going to create some kind of, of, of real rebellion. Um, but the ways in which the Taliban are international are not um, ones that, that um, you know, they're very disheartening ways. So um, right. I, I think that that might have implications going forward. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm not, 
I don't expect a Uyghur overthrow of the Han Chinese anytime soon either. But I mean, it just be, it would be you know, it, it, it would be an interesting unintended consequences of all unintended consequence of all this to see, you know, some of that kind of stuff. But I'm not saying I'm hoping for it either, because, you know, a feudal rebellion against that kind of oppression ain't great either. Um, it's that it does give you a through. sense, though, where the Taliban are, are coming from. I mean, the Taliban basically deny that they have foreign fighters on their side against all evidence. And if if that's where you start, where the Taliban don't believe that Al-Qaeda committed 9-11, <laughs> they don't right. believe that, that, that they deny that they have foreign uh, jihadist forces under their, their command. That, that is not very promising when it, when it comes to having them play nicely with, um, with the rest of the world. You, you did a big profile of this guy. I can't remember his first name. Turchin, right? Peter uh, Turchin, yes. Yeah, Peter Turchin, um, who uh, has this argument about why... Um, you know, it's funny. I've been giving a speech for 20 years called Cheer Up for the Worst is Yet to Come, and I've always been right. <laughs> um, but uh, uh, he takes it to another level. Why don't you sort of explain what, you know, what the argument is, and then I want to ask you a couple questions about it. Yeah, so just a few seconds of background. He is an expert on bark beetles. He, he knows if you've got bark beetles eating your trees, uh, how their populations rise and fall. And like a lot of academics, once he got tenure, he decided, all right, I, I'm done with bark beetles. I'm going to try a different organism. And he chose human beings. And he, he figured, all right, we can see the rise and fall of, of human civilizations too, just using many of the same tools, mathematical tools at this point, that we've used to 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 watch uh, little bugs and such. So, what he found was that uh, there were, were predictable waves of rises and falls, uh, and predictable waves of political violence in the United States, in particular. And those waves, um, we saw them in 1968, 70, and we, he predicted in 2010, when not a whole lot of people were listening to him, that they would hit around oh 2020 ish. Uh, and, you know, he kind of hit the jackpot there. So people have been watching. Um, but th the main thing that he found was, was that um, the phrase that's now associated with him is elite overproduction, which is the, the, the greatest sign that a country or the United States is going to um, face a real crisis is if it's just minting too many people who are part of the upper class or plausibly think that they have a place in that upper class. And when you get enough of those people who are also rands for the Senate or for, you know, whatever stone cutters club or whatever it is that they might be part of. And then eventually they start allying with the commoners and they have a rebellion and it doesn't get any better until the number of elites is brought back down to a sustainable level, either by taxing the hell out of them or by killing some of them, there's just a, there's a number of ways that it can happen. But un, un, until it gets better, it gets worse. Um, so the, I, I love part of the theory, and I, I don't want to make you defend the theory. I, I think the elite overproduction thing has a lot of merit to it, and it kind of gets to what we were talking about earlier about how the bourgeois tend to be the revolutionaries, is because you know, the, and this is something that I, I write a lot about, wrote a lot about in my last book, but Nietzsche's uh, theory of resentment, where Basically, the out elites in his original telling were basically the Catholic, were, were the Christian priests, 
they use words to undermine the existing elites who are the knightly class. And then, uh, and then, so what they do is they invert morality so that what once was the highest morality were things like bravery and courage and, and, you know, and, and, um, and will and all these kinds of things. And then all of a sudden it becomes the Christian definitions, which are like humility and meekness and all these kinds of things. And it was a way to delegitimize the current elite and make themselves the new elite. And this idea really influences Schumpeter in his theory about why capitalism is doomed. Um, I think there's a lot of merit to that. And this is one of the things I keep harping on in my writing is that everybody who thinks the culture war fight is between the downtrodden and the elites is missing the point that it's really a fight between two elite factions trying to claim supremacy and, um, and they're using sort of the lumpen proletariat as their legitimizing moral authority you know so aoc who's very much part of the meritocracy she claims to be speaking for the downtrodden you know people of color and poor people in this country and ted cruz who's very much a part of the meritocracy i mean he's married to a goldman sachs director and he went to harvard law and he was a, you know he's a freaking what third term senator second term senator uh former solicitor general of texas former supreme court clerk i mean this guy is the meritocracy um but he claims to be speaking for the excluded Bubba, you know, faction. And, and so it's, it's, it's very much Pareto elites versus elites, um, rather than up down kind of thing. And, uh, and so that part of his theory, I, I like, um, or at least I think there's a lot of merit to it, um, because of the churn you get and stability when you have too many elites fighting with each other. Um, the part I don't like is just all this math stuff. Um, and, you know, he claiming that you can mathematically model all of this. I'm very skeptical about. Um, but, I mean, you, you really didn't tip your hat, if, I, if memory serves, about where you came down on all of this. You just did it like a nice reporter and said, here's this interesting thing this dude believes in. Um, what was your reaction to it? Where do you come down on it? Um, um, and are the living going to envy the dead? <laughs> yeah, that, that last part's really important, isn't it? Um, he, so the math stuff uh, is beyond my ability. Um, I'm guessing it's beyond yours too. You, you get yeah. enough squiggly letters and and such. And it's witchcraft. Um, it's just freaking witchcraft. I mean, let's just be yeah, honest. You, no. <laughs> you got to kind of take him at his word for for that. And I am also reluctant though to um, just uh, sit down and shut up when mathematicians speak because you know that, that that's 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 often um, a way to buffalo your way through uh, a conversation that that, uh, that that should be should be a bigger one. That said, um, I think the way that he looks at the world is a, is a useful one. I actually want to see more of this type of mathematical application to to history. Um, and the the main reason for that is, has nothing to do with my saying that he's right or, or wrong, but hearing the way that historians and um, people who are actually trained in history rather than interlopers from other disciplines reacted to it, and uh, this is this is in a way a species of the elite gatekeeping that you've seen in so many other different spheres. Um, but there was definitely a, a uh, get off my, my lawn attitude yeah. from a, a lot of historians who, who honestly math will teach us something. And, um, I think Peter Turchin gets to at least some of those, those somethings. Now 
understanding, at least in the broadest way, the limitations of that is, is probably um, just as important as having having respect for these these interlopers. You know, I, I talked to a, a sociologist at the University of Chicago. Uh, he's a sociologist, but weirdly enough, he, he's he's also a PhD in, in um, mathematical ecology. Uh, so he he can speak as a peer to Peter Turchin in, in both spheres. And he said, look, I thought first that I could look at the way that, that bug populations rose and fell and do the same thing with, with humans. But the more I look at humans, um, it's just really complicated the way humans talk, the way they justify themselves. You know, it shouldn't be that surprising, but it sounded surprising to him. Right? He said, <laughs> look, there might be some woodpecker who is, you know, there might be some woodpecker who's really good at, at getting the termites out of out of a tree and makes sure that he's the first one who gets into the new hole in the tree and gets the best termites. But he's not going to do what humans do, which is saying that I'm first because of divine right of kings, or I'm first because God says so. These are um, there's so many complexities about the way that humans justify themselves that uh, to hope that you can start with with um, bark beetles and then work your way up. Um, it does seem crazily optimistic. Yeah. I mean, I, I guess that's part of the point, right? Is, I mean, that's a good way to put it. I hadn't thought of it in those terms, but like bark beetles are essentially a commodity, right? Like a bushel of wheat in India is the same thing as a bushel for all intents and purposes, uh, a bushel of wheat in Indiana. It's a bushel of wheat. It's a fungible commodity. Bark beetles are fungible life forms. One bar, bar, bark beetle is and I know I, I I apologize to bark beetle listeners out there, but you're all the same, right? And um, that's just not true with human beings, right? The, the free will thing is a problem, and um, I mean, like, I'm cur- curious to know where you come down on this. In that you've looked at so much of like the formation of ISIS and these movements up close, um, where do you come down just as a general proposition on the great man? theory of history i mean like did these groups were these groups dependent on individual personalities and but for their role they wouldn't have formed or do you think that these were part of cold inexorable mathematically modelable forces if you look at the the journalism that i've done uh an astounding proportion of it is about idiosyncratic figures in history important ones not so important ones but just people who are different from the rest of us and who, who somehow escaped the great normalizing process that, that leads us to, you know, wake up at 7am and go to sleep at, at 11pm and, you know, pay our taxes on time. So I am fascinated by these people who find ways in the world that are, are different from, from the rest of us and sometimes have enormous influence far greater than you would ever expect for, for someone with, with, with their origins. And yeah, I guess when it comes down to it, the reason that I've focused on such people is because sometimes one finds them able to escape the, their origins uh, to an astonishing degree. Um, mm. And in ISIS, that was uh, was certainly the case, where you find people who were influential on many, many other people, um, and who, if you were to just look at their CV, you would think that, that they would be, um, you know, <laughs> unexceptional people. Uh, but instead, they, they move the world. They, they move people across borders, and they, they cause people to live and die. So 
I continue to think that that some version of the great man view of the world is the is a is a productive one, uh, and it's the one that I I you know it's my mo as a as a reporter <laughs> often. The, so it, it it better be right. Yeah, I mean, and, and again, I think you agree. It it doesn't explain everything, right? There are serious historical forces and trends that matter. You know, um, we know from study of history that financial crises tend to uh, lead to populist uprisings, right? I mean, I think that's a predictable thing that's that's not about one individual, but the one individual can take that uprising of populist spirit and take it in one direction or another direction. And that does matter, right? The, 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 it could be a propit, a financial crisis can be a propitious time for a demagogue to arrive, but what that demagogue wants to do matters. And so it's, it's a both and not an either or kind of thing. Um, but the, you know, it's funny you mentioned this cause like one of my favorite, tropes in science fiction and apocalyptic fiction is the mild-mannered dude who would have gone his entire life as basically Bartleby the Scrivener but for the zombie apocalypse or the EMP attack or whatever it is and then becomes a warlord right so Negan in The Walking Dead or uh the that Kevin Costner um the Postman movie where he plays oh yeah uh, I was a copy machine repairman the guy said yeah the copy machine repairman guy turns out to be a warlord I I love that stuff I love how um there's this and I think it's true that like every now and then history kind of sloshes two things together you know gets the 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 chocolate of technology into the peanut butter of personality and creates this new wild ass thing I'm I when I was a television producer, we interviewed John Keegan, the military historian, and he gave this fantastic, I didn't interview him, I was the producer, but uh, you know, he gave this fantastic answer when my boss at the time, this guy Ben Wattenberg, asked him who the deadliest soldiers in human history were. And he said, well, you got to give it to the SS, and then there was the, the, the Mongol this, and whatever, whatever the full, you know, back, you know, his throat clearing on it. And then he said, look, as I'm just following the data, it was the plane, it was the, it was the Plains Indian at a specific time in the 19th century, because there was the, the intersection of the culture of the Apache, I think it was, and the introduction of the horse by the Spanish and the introduction of the, I guess the Remington rifle, but the rifle. These three things made these guys the most formidable, difficult, and expensive to kill soldiers in all of human history, according to him. And, and, and like <laughs> historical forces matter, but also just like weird intersect, weird combinations matter. And I don't think you get weird combinations with bark beetles. You know, I mean, not like that. Yeah, they, they certainly aren't innovating uh, new types of rifles, or you know, there's, right. there's no shortage of examples in military history of battles wars that just went slightly differently because of of either individuals who turned out to be brilliant tacticians or pieces of technology that arrived um, right I'm, I'm thinking of the, the toyota war in in um, southern lebanon and chad where a chadian force because they had these toyotas that could move really fast they basically routed the libyan military in the south of their own country so that 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 type of thing happens all the time and you know I say that one of my MOs is to find idiosyncratic figures. It's actually to find idiosyncratic things like that, mm -hmm. where the world just turns out to be way more interesting than you would expect because of 
innovations in, in uh, of, of one sort or another, either of personality or, or, or tech. And yeah, the most innovative bark beetle in the world has not invented the bark beetle equivalent of a Toyota. And the most innovative bark beetle in the world has, has not become the, the Hannibal of bark beetles and uh, <laughs> nearly defeated Rome. Um, although, you know, uh, Starship Troopers comes pretty close to that, but that's a different story. All right. I, I, I just, I, out of curiosity, what languages do you speak? Oh, I, I, I hate that question, Jonah, because it depends on what you mean by, by speak them, but uh-huh. there's an, a number of languages that I can fake my way through. And it, it's because since when I was a kid, it's been one of my absolute favorite hobbies is just pick up a book about a different language and, and see how it works. So, um, that, the simplest answer is I learned European languages when I was a kid, Spanish, Italian, and German, some French, and then um, moved into um, Near Eastern languages, so Persian, Azerbaijani, uh, and then Arabic eventually. So, um, but, you know, if you shake me awake in the middle of the night and ask me to speak in one of them, the results will be mixed. Yeah, but I mean, I mean again, I'm not multilingual, but I, I lived in... Prague for a little while after college and one of the and i've always had a good ear for language and it is weird like you talk to me in the united states in some language and i'll be a mess but if you drop me in the middle of some place and i have to have a conversation all of a sudden it's weird how your brain opens up certain files and i can come up with my german and, and my french a little bit um so i can I, that kind of makes some sense to me uh can i ask like like were your parents international travelers or something like what how did you or is this just you were just some quirky kid who was in the back room boning up on his italian i mean like is there a reason why you took on languages at the young age uh i was very lucky to have great parents who were avid travelers um but um i was also just a nerd at heart you know uh and they didn't buy me enough nintendo games so i had to get teach yourself uh, teach yourself Russian books and, and such instead. Good, good for you. I mean, uh, um, maybe did you help Richard Spencer with his German? <laughs> <laughs> I, I think he cheated off my chemistry, but uh, that, that's that's the, all the assistance that I gave. Fair enough. Fair enough. Uh, Graham, thank you so much for doing this. I really, really appreciate it. I hope I'll have you. I hope to have you back. Um, you know, maybe when you're not seven thousand miles away or whatever the distance is. Um, but this was great. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Thanks for having me. All right. So, uh, Graham, Ru- Graham Wood has left the conversation, but not his hotel room. He is great. F- he's, 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 he's helpfully leaving his browser open because it turns out that Saudi hotel Wi-Fi is not, um, the blistering lickety split Wi-Fi that you would expect it to be. So his audio is still unloading as I record this. Um, Oh, and also he mentioned something interesting to me that um, I did not know. The you know I made some joke about Graham being pulled out of his hotel room by the religious police in Saudi Arabia. Um, apparently, under the reforms under MBS, he says that they're gone. They don't have those religious police driving around um, telling women to you know uh, cover up their ankles or whatever anymore, which is is interesting. And you know, at some point, maybe we should do a whole podcast about MBS and um I remember we were talking about this back in the day when you know they uh when the Saudis killed that reporter in Turkey um which is outrageous and 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 I have 
don't blame the Washington Post and, and human rights people for making as big a stink as they possibly could about it. Shouldn't have done it. It was evil. Feel a little bad for the murderous assassins who did it because the second this became a thing, you knew that MBS was going to throw them all under the bus, which he did. Um, but, you know, this I, there's this idea that to be a reformer in authoritarian countries requires being a great guy in every regard. And, um, you know, history just doesn't really work that way. Um, I'm not defending MBS. Uh, I just think that compared to the alternatives we could have running, uh, Saudi Arabia, he's probably still for the better for the Saudi Arabians and for the U S but that's a podcast for another day. Um, uh, I really want to thank Graham for coming on. Um, I thought that was really great and interesting, and I apologize to listeners for some of my more uh, self-indulgent questions. But I just I sit watching the news and I see these Taliban fighters, and I can't. I'm like, how does that guy know to take orders from that guy or vice versa? It just it bothers me. Um, and uh, other than that, um, it's been um, it, I think it's been a good week. Thank you for all the feedback about the Peter Sutterman thing. I will talk more about that on the uh friday ruminant thing um i do as i suggested i do apologize for getting bogged down in a 40 minute discussion about something i didn't intend to talk about but such is the nature of unscripted conversational podcasts you go where the current takes you um and other than that i guess i'll just see you next time no you won't Jonah. this is a podcast